Well, good morning, Ridge Church. For those of you that don't know me, my name is Daniel Sanderson, and I'm one of the pastors here at the church. We have a lot to get through today, um, and so I'm going to actually just pray, and we're going to jump right in it, because I'm really excited about this passage, and I feel very honored to be able to share from the living Word of God. So I'm going to pray, and we'll start rolling. Lord, we're so thankful that we have the Bible, that we have your word that's there to guide us, to convict us, to affirm us, to comfort us. God, we ask for the Holy Spirit to open our hearts and minds to what you have to say. We also ask for the Holy Spirit to utilize the words that are being said today, and we're going to learn something really, really important and has eternal ramifications. So God, we want to grow closer to you. We want to learn more about who you are, about what Jesus has done for us on the cross, and we give you this time. Amen. So, unfortunately, I'm going to be the one that says I'm starting to feel old this year specifically. And I know, and I know, um, I still look like I'm 18, but I'm starting to feel old. Maybe it's the fact that I can't just sleep on any surface anymore. Maybe um, it's because my back hurts all the time or I hurt myself in so many different ways. Like I even hurt myself by walking into my office door the other day. I know that's pretty sad. But one of the main reasons why I feel like I'm getting older is because I'm having people talk to me and say, Daniel, you can't really say that term anymore. I'm like, oh no, I'm already at that point. I'm already starting to not understand the new cool phrases or the new lingo, the new terminology. And one of the new terms that I just learned not that long ago was the term gaslighting. And I know a lot of people have known about that term for a bit now, but I only took a look into what it actually meant a few months ago. And so I'm actually going to give you the definition because I know there's probably people looking around being like, ooh, I might not actually know what that truly means either. So the, the, the definition of gaslighting is to manipulate another person into doubting their own perceptions, experiences, or understanding of events. And so as I'm thinking through that definition, I'm like, wait, I've actually been a victim of gaslighting before. I was like, oh, I've been a victim. And we all know that we went on, or we sent a team to Guatemala, to Impact Ministries about a month or so ago, and I got to be a part of that team and lead that team. And it was a great group of people, absolutely loved the experience. But I realized that they made me a victim of gaslighting almost that whole trip. And so we have to take a couple steps back to about four to five years ago when I went on my first trip to Guatemala to the same ministry with a different church, and you go through training and you're equipped on like what to do, what not to do, what's a cultural norm there, et cetera, et cetera. And we were taught to do not do this hand gesture. We were taught that that hand gesture was pretty much giving the middle finger. We're like, okay, we're, I'm not going to do that. We'll make sure that we never show that hand gesture. And I remember quite clearly we were running like a sport or a game and I was doing scores like, okay, it's one. And I was going to do this for nothing. And I was like, oh, no, 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 I, I can't do that because I almost flipped the bird to the entire room. And I remember that so vividly that that actually happened. But then coming fast forwarding to today or to this trip, when we're doing the training, I'm telling the whole team, okay, guys, we got to be careful. We do not do this hand gesture because it means uh, you're giving the middle finger. Everyone's like, yeah, Daniel, we trust you. You've been there before. You're a trustworthy guy. You haven't lied to us before. I was like, okay. And so while we're in Guatemala, I love Mark LaFleur, love him to death, and he's in front of the whole school, and what he does is he's like, oh yeah, I'm A-OK, -okay. and he goes like this, and I've never seen him go so red in the face so quickly, and he just is freaking out, like, I'm going to be deported, I want to be brought back to Canada, 
I just flipped the bird to the entire room. And he's talking to the rest of the team. And he's talking to the staff saying, I'm like, I'm so, so sorry. I'm so sorry that I did that. And Hugo, one of the Guatemala staff, was like, what do you, come on, what do you mean? That, that's totally fine. You could do that. And we were driving and we saw there was a vote going on and some of the political posters had this hand gesture on it. So everyone's looking at me saying, Daniel, you are nuts. You are crazy. Like you clearly didn't remember properly. And I'm freaking out being like, is my memory going? Do I have dementia? And I started to get really scared because I was like, I thought that that truly happened. I wasn't trying to lie. And so there was one night near the end of our trip where we're uh, sitting outside in Antigua and it's myself, Dan Steenson, and one of the Guatemalan staff, Hugo, who was actually there the first time that I went with the team. And he was like, can we FaceTime the co-leader that was on the team the last time I went? And I was like, sure. So we FaceTime Shalan. We're talking, reconnecting, asking questions back and forth. And I'm like, Shalan, before you go, I've got to set something straight to make sure I'm not crazy. Were we taught that this hand gesture meant giving the middle finger and she's like, oh yeah, 100%. That's what they taught us. They told us, do not do that. And Hugo starts laughing, being like, I gotcha. And so I'm like, oh my gosh, like I wasn't crazy. And I literally was like, okay, I needed to get a witness. I needed to get the testimony of someone else to back up my own claims. And that totally makes sense because in a world full of information, it is getting hard to weed out the incorrect claims and the incorrect information. And people are wanting other witnesses and testimonies to back up what is being said. That seems logical. And that's what I had to do there. To defend my claim, I had to bring a different witness to the stand. So in this passage, we will see that it's like a courtroom scene. It feels like Jesus being put on trial. And we know from the past two sermons, kind of as a summary on how Jesus got to this point, is that Jesus healed someone who was suffering for a long time. He told him to get up and carry his mat. And the religious leaders saw the man carrying the mat and said, why are, you, why are you working on a Sabbath? You're not allowed to do that. And the guy's like, oh, this guy healed me. There's not a guy named Jesus. And he told me to do it. And they're like, oh, he worked on the Sabbath. And they go and they want to accuse him. And so they go and they're like accusing him. And in the last sermon with, that Jonathan just preached, he, Jesus feels like he has to go and respond to all these accusations. And so he, he goes and he makes claims like, I am on par with the Father. I am the Son of God. I can also give life. I have been given the authority to bring judgment. These are all huge claims that Jesus is making. And it just blows the religious leaders away. They get super upset. And Jesus here already knows that the religious leaders won't see his testimony as enough. So let's look at verse 31 and 32 in John chapter 5. If I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who testifies in my favor, and I know that his testimony about me is true. And so Jesus goes on and he says, I'm, I'm willing to play your game. I know you're going to want more than just my testimony. And he probably has Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15 in the back of his mind. And that passage says, one witness is not enough to convict anyone accused of any crime or offense they may have committed. A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. So Jesus knows this is probably what he has to do. He's like, I will play your game. And so in this passage, we're going to see Jesus bring up different witnesses to the stand to back up the claims that he has just made. We've got John the Baptist, his, Jesus' works and miracles, God the Father, and Scripture. 
Sometimes people break it down to just three. Today, we're looking at it as four witnesses. The thing is, Jesus knows that faith isn't anti-intellectual. He said, I will use the systems of the day I submit to the law of evidence because he knows that he's going after probably some of the best and most diligent Bible students in the world. And Jesus used to debates because not only then, but even now, Jesus is put on trial every single day. If it's questions, if it's documentaries, if it's articles, books, whatever that may be, people are always putting him on trial. And the reason being is that Jesus came to bring a faith that defies all categories and boxes that we'd want to put him in. It might not make sense to us. It seems countercultural. And so that's why Jesus is always being put on trial because people just don't seem to want to understand. So we see that Jesus is using logic and evidence to back up his claims, but in the end, there's going to be a twist. And I'm going to leave suspense with that twist for now, but it's something that's going to have eternal ramifications on each and every one of us. So the first witness he brings to the stand is John the Baptist. And so looking at verse 33 to 35, it says, You've sent to John, and he has testified to the truth, not that I accept human testimony, but I mention it that you may be saved. John was a lamp that burned and gave light, and you chose for a time to enjoy his light. So this witness is kind of Jesus bringing up one that's more personal, pulls on the, on the personal heartstrings, because he, John the Baptist, is a man that his audience would know deeply. A lot of them might have even met him in person. John the Baptist was seen as a superstar, and people came from all around to be able to see him. And the reason why is that he was the first prophet in about 300 to 400 years, the first person in a long time that's come to tell people about what is to come, the coming Messiah. And so that's like five to six or so lifespans. And so people have been waiting for so long for someone like him. He was also an eyewitness to Jesus. He was an example of what happens to someone when they know Jesus and they've been impacted by him. So John the Baptist was someone that had been impacted and been around Jesus. I love how the passage brings up, John was a lamp that burned and gave light. Because as you know, a lamp burns and shines, and the lamp is actually seen as something to guide. And this is a perfect tribute to who John the Baptist was. He was always someone to guide people, to point people in the right direction. But the other thing to take note of is that with a lamp, it emits strong light to guide, but it isn't the source of its own light because you put like the oil in, you've got the wick, you light the wick, and once the oil is out, the light goes out. So John was a great light for people, but he wasn't the source of that light. That light source is Jesus. And so looking at John, we could see evidence of what our lives can look like when living off the source of life, which is Jesus. Think about like the moon. The moon is bright at night, and, but it's not emitting its own light. It's just reflecting the light of the sun. So John was always pointing people away from himself to the Messiah. When people would ask him, are you the Messiah? Are you Elijah? Come back or another prophet? Come back. He would say no, and he would always point them towards who would be Jesus. But the next part of this verse, I think, is really important for us to take note of today, specifically. It says that John was, or the passage said that you were willing to rejoice for a while or enjoy for a while in his light. 
And so what we know is that John was a radiant, infectious person that people were drawn to. People wanted to be around him. And the crazy thing is that it's not like John was an easy guy. He lived in the wilderness, probably seemed a little bit crazy in that regard. He ate locusts and honey. He wore camel's hair. Like there must have been something else to draw people to him. But it says that he was radiant and and people enjoyed actually being around him. And if you think about anyone that has been so intimately um, impacted and transformed by Jesus, I don't know if it's when they first come to know him and they give their lives to Jesus or if they've hit such lows and Jesus meets them where they're at and they're picked back up. But I know that people that have had those experiences are the people that I always want to be around because they're just infectious and you just want, they're joyful and they're so thankful. They've got gratitude. Um, and I think about this one guy, and I know that a lot of people that know me will make fun of me for this uh, because they know that I really admire this one person. Uh, and But it's not about what the person has done. It's just about just being something about being around him. And his name is Daryl Johnson. And I'm not a fanboy normally of like anyone, especially people in ministry, but Daryl Johnson is someone that, that I admired deeply, not because he helped with translation of the Bible, worked at Regent, is a great preacher, a great pastor, but a while ago on a staff retreat, he was one of the speakers at it, and we got to sit down and have meals with Daryl, and I remember all I wanted to do after being in his presence is all I wanted to do was love Jesus more and read my Bible more. It was crazy. I can't even pinpoint why. But all I know is I wanted to love Jesus more. And he wouldn't take any of the praise either. He'd say, you did a great job preaching. He's like, isn't Jesus wonderful? Oh, that's so wise. Oh, all the glory to Jesus. All he did was humble himself and point to Jesus. He was, he was infectious. And that radiance is because of his relationship with Jesus. It's the mark of Jesus on his life. So my question to you is, is the way that John lived your life? Are you living a life characterized by joy? Are you radiant? Are you someone that is infectious to be around? Because honestly, many Christians today are characterized by being mundane, boring, grumpy, negative, argumentative, small-minded. See, the thing is, is people around the world are looking in at the church. And when they're looking in the church to see, oh, if they fall this Jesus guy, I bet you their lives must be different. Or if I'm going to follow him, I want to say that their lives are actually different. But what are they actually going to see? And unfortunately, I think a lot of people see Christians sitting on their butts in the four walls of the church or in their homes, being armchair theologians who are arguing about every little thing and nitpicking around every little thing. If it's the color on the wall, if it's the end times, if it's... uh, the times of the services, if it's what programs we are doing, the programs that we're not doing, but all they, all we do is turn inwardly and nitpick and we're negative and we're grumpy and people will look inside and be, I don't want to be that. Clearly there's nothing different about them, nothing joyful, nothing radiant about them because we should be defined by light. We represent King Jesus instead of the per- being people that are full of fear, negativity, and just wanting to fight about everything. That when I, my hope is that when people see me or around me or around you is that they actually say, I might not believe in Jesus yet, but being around you makes me want to believe. And so Jesus says, this is my first witness. You trusted John and you listened to him. So why aren't you doing that now? He's, he is someone that's representing what happens when they're impacted by me.
So the second witness that comes to the stand is Jesus' works, his, the miracles. This is more of the empirical angle, and we read verse 36. I have testimony weightier than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I am doing, testify that the Father has sent me. So his works are brought to the stand, and even in the Gospels, there's about 30-plus miracles that are recorded. And his works are the very thing that's actually brought him to the situation that he's in right now. Because remember, he healed the man who had been suffering for a long time. But the funny part is that the religious leaders, they look at this miracle and they just throw it to the side. They just disregard it and they don't care about that at all. All they care about, rules are broken. Rules are broken. We got to address that. We got to look at that. And so Jesus is saying, the very thing you chose to overlook is what I'm bringing to the stand now. Because Jesus knows that sometimes we forget the power and the testimony that the works of Jesus bring. Some examples being like Jesus heals an official son from a distance. He heals a paralytic from, uh, that was dropped down through a roof. He raises a widow's son from the dead. He calms a storm on the sea. He casts out demons. But you know, it's funny because a lot of people will come to me and say, well, if God just steps up and does this miracle, does this tangible thing, then I will believe. But when that thing actually happens, then they try to justify it or they shut it down because they just, their brains can't logically explain it. See, it's, it's totally fine to be skeptical of miracles because even Moses says in, in Deuteronomy chapter 13, talks about to make sure that the miracle worker testifies the source of that power. So it's a good thing to actually test. We need to ask questions. We need to test so I'm not saying it's bad whatsoever. The good thing, though, is that there are plenty of witnesses to the works of Jesus because by themselves, miracles are powerful, but alongside other witnesses, they are unmistakable. And also, if you wanted to lie about all the works that were being done, you would just wait to write the Gospels until all the eyewitnesses were either long gone or dead because they could just be like, well, I was there. That didn't happen like that. But no, the Gospels were written when the eyewitnesses could still be around to shut down anything that was untrue. Also, it wasn't just like one or two miracles. There's so many different things that Jesus did. And you look at John chapter 21, verse 25, where it says, Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have the room for the books that would be written. So friends, Jesus continues to work today, not just in the time of the Bible, he does miracles, he heals, he gives dreams, etc. And I could share many personal stories, but if your hearts are like the religious leaders, you're not going to look at them. You're going to just disregard them nonetheless because you're just your heart's not ready to actually believe that God can step in in that kind of way because we have the tendency to downplay the experiential part of God. We usually try to only use our intellect and only argue our way through things and to convince people about who Jesus is through intellectual arguments and claims. And I'm not saying that those are wrong. I think those are very important. But we can't disregard the experiential part of our faith. There's a balance. There's the intellect. There's the Bible. There's the scripture. There's the thing to guide us. But there's also the relational aspect. Both are important. If any of you have been a pitcher in your life in baseball, I played high-level baseball for a while growing up, and, and I had some of the worst games of my life where I was overthinking everything, every movement, every form, every technique, and I just could not hit the strike zone. And my coach at the time came to me and said, Daniel, sometimes you just have to feel. Don't think, just feel. 
And I remember being like, okay, in the next couple of games, I like close my eyes and I just feel, I don't think about anything and I have some of the best games of my short little pitching career. And so sometimes it's important to actually look at and feel and not just only think. Both are important. And so my challenge and question around this for you and what Jesus is also kind of presenting is how often do we use the miracles and works of Jesus as an example to point people to him? Or are we only trying to argue our way through? And I can count on like one hand or maybe less of the people that I know that if just by arguing with them back and forth that they've come to know Jesus, they also want to see, they need to experience a heart transformation. They need to actually experience Jesus. And I don't think I've ever actually been like, oh, look at the works and the miracles of what Jesus has done in my life and use that to try and bring people to him. Even just quickly, my mom, she had horrible, horrible neck pain for years. She had to wear a neck brace. She couldn't lie down flat. And Lyndon was about to be born. And if any of you know the story of Lyndon's birth, it was chaos and crazy emergency C-section. And my mom had told me after the fact that the day before all of that went down with the birth of Lyndon, she had prayed, God, I want to help my grandson. I want to help my son with his kid. Please heal me to be ready in time to help. And what she realized is after everything went down that next day, she realized God had actually healed her overnight. She had no pain anymore. I've never used that story to try and draw people to Jesus before, and I feel so convicted by it. Jesus is saying, what I do in the world points to me. So the next witness is God the Father. This is more of the authority angle. We'll look at verse 37 to 38. It says, and the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You have never heard his voice, nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. So Jesus is starting to take more of the offensive now, instead of just being on the defensive. And he says, the God the Father which all the audience is supposed to be following and believing and listening to, testifies of me in three ways. And the first two are simply voice and form. I'm not going to hit this witness for too long, but I'm going to bring up uh, Luke chapter 3, verse 22, which is Jesus' baptism, where this is a perfect example of something that people around there could witness and actually see how God's voice and form actually testified in the claims that Jesus is making. So after he got baptized, in, the, in verse 22 of Luke chapter 3, it says, And the Holy Spirit descended on him as Jesus, or onto Jesus, in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, a voice. You are my son, whom I love, with you I am well pleased. And Jesus is saying, that's actually happened. And you aren't hearing his voice, and you're not seeing his form. But don't, oh, at least you have the third part of how God the Father testifies, which is Scripture. And you have this fourth witness at your fingertips. But as we can see in the call out, Jesus is saying the sad part is you don't even have a dwell in your heart because this amazing witness that points to me, that has all the answers in front of you, you're still not seeing it. So the fourth witness is Scripture. And this, and this Bible, the Bible is an amazing document, a document that we've been blessed with, a document, a book that people have died to get their hands on. People haven't died for the Harry Potter books or Lord of the Rings books, but people have died for the Bible. Some very interesting points, even just how the Bible was put together. It's a document made up of 66 books, 
over 40 different authors comprised through three different languages put together over three different continents, all written over the span of around 1,500 years. It deals with the most controversial matter, stuff about God, the origin of man, our purpose, future of the world, and yet all of it goes seamlessly together. That blows my mind away. 1,500 years, all the different authors, and yet everything works together seamlessly. It seems nearly impossible. It shows just how special the Word of God actually is for us. And I actually have a graphic that we're going to throw up onto the screen just to show visually how everything connects together. And you can see it's like this beautiful rainbow of all the Old Testament connections to the New Testament. And if we know that how like long has been written over and all the different authors, this is almost unbelievable to see how it all works together. And Jesus is saying, this document is filled and riddled with pointers that are pointing to my authority and backs up my claims. And I actually have another graphic that we're going to throw up um, because there's so many Old Testament prophecies that were fulfilled by Jesus. Actually, around 300 plus prophecies of the coming Messiah were fulfilled by Jesus in the New Testament. And so I know you cannot read all the tiny font, but just look at all of those lines of all the different connecting points. And the, the odds of this happening is insane. Uh, a professor named Peter Stoner, in his book, he did a study of what is the probability of just eight of these prophecies being fulfilled by just one person. And the result was one in 100 quadrillion. And so when you start using words that sound fake, you know it's a big, big number. And then Lee Strobel, an atheist-turned-Christian, made calculations to see what this would look like in real life. And so this is what he said, I imagined the entire world being covered with white tile that was one and a half inches square, every bit of dry land on the planet with the bottom of just one tile painted red. Then I pictured a person being allowed to wander for a lifetime around all seven continents. He would be permitted to bend down only one time and pick up a piece of tile. What are the odds it would be the one tile whose reverse side was painted red? The odds would be the same as just eight of the Old Testament prophecies coming true in any, any one person in through history. So that's just eight. There's over 300 plus that have been fulfilled by Jesus. But in this sermon, I'm not looking to go down the rabbit trail of all the intricate arguments of how the Bible is legitimate because that would take me, even, that would take me way over time. And that's also not the main point that Jesus is trying to get at with this specific audience, because this is where the twist comes in. This is the TSN turning point, because Jesus has come to make a heart diagnosis on his audience and on us today. Something we need to hear because it does have eternal ramifications. So we'll go on to read verse 39 to 40. It says, you study the scripture diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. See, the, the issue here is that Jesus can read the hearts of the religious leaders and knows that no matter how many pieces of evidence that he provides, they will not choose to accept Jesus, that they will refuse to come to him to have life. Because they claim to know God intimately, but he's saying you don't hear his voice, you don't see his form, and you don't have the word dwelling in your hearts. And this is a terrifying claim, not only to them, but to us, because it's saying that what they have focused on their whole entire lives, they have completely missed the mark and they are completely lost. So the people that are the most well known for being the closest to God and knowing him have just been called out that they don't know him at all. 
And the same thing can be for us, that we might be going through every single day thinking we, we are trying to get to know God, we're trying to do things right, but we could be missing the point completely. And that's terrifying to think about. On the surface level, it looked like the religious leaders were right on track. They built their life on memorizing the Bible and living holy lives and following all the rules. And in different translations where Jesus uses the term search instead of diligently study, it's actually an aggressive term refers to wild dogs like tracking for food. So when they're ravenously like trying to hunt and search the scriptures and find the rules and do things right, what are they actually trying to accomplish with all of their time? Are their hearts actually looking at all to find what it's pointing towards, which is the Savior, and to grow more in love with him? Or are they focusing more on the means uh, compared to the end? And what Jesus says is, no, they are in love with the idea of scripture, and they love the religious life. They weren't falling in love with God. Because friends, saving faith is the love of God, not theology, not checking off the boxes, like going to church, going on missions, doing the right projects, serving, going to Bible study. All these things are great, but they come from knowing God himself first, and they cannot be your identity. Because if you are here at church because you just really like the community, oh, you feel safe, oh, I, I, can, I can feel better about myself because I'm serving, or I can learn more, you're going to walk away from Jesus. You're going to walk away from your faith when any bad thing happens because you're not actually holding on to what is the actual goal. And if, when people come and ask me, like, how will my kids follow Jesus? They're not going to follow Jesus because you're checking off all the boxes and you're just going to church and you're just going through the motions. They're looking at you to see, has my parents' hearts been transformed and changed? Do they long and cling to Jesus? Because that's what I want. It's so funny how we can fall in love with the idea of something and miss out on what is actually pointing us to. So Jesus then goes on to provide the answer to why people will choose to not follow him no matter the evidence. We'll read verse 41 to 44. I do not accept glory from human beings, but I know you. I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not accept me. But if someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. How can you believe since you accept glory from one another, but do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? So if you go home and you only talk about one point today, is that the hard diagnosis that Jesus is making is pride. So the main reason why people will still reject him, no matter what evidence is provided, any argument, pride will be the thing that gets in the way. That we'd rather accept glory from one another and accept anyone that comes with a message that just makes sense and tickles our ears but, and sacrifice the glory that comes from God himself. We can be self-righteous and we love to make everything about ourselves. And the thing is that we can agree and see the evidence and pointers to Jesus, but we don't want to accept it because we want Jesus to fit into the box and the categories that we want him to be in because we want faith. We want Jesus to be our servant. We want to use him to get what we want because prideful people are takers. And we can see that even by looking at the religious leaders, because in this passage, they're saying, Jesus, your testimony is not enough. You have to bring legitimate witnesses to the stand for us to consider. But if you look at Matthew chapter 26, verse 60, when they're putting him on trial because they're wanting to catch him and they're wanting to be, put him on the cross and kill him and get rid of him, they actually employ false witnesses who give conflicting testimony and no objection is raised. 
And then in verse 63 of the same chapter, they ask Jesus to give testimony on himself, but then condemn him on just his testimony alone. So there they're fine to listen to just his words, but here, when it doesn't fit what they want it to fit, they won't take his testimony. And this proves that they aren't seeking neither justice or truth. They are completely stuck in their way of thinking they're just trying to achieve what they want to achieve. Because ultimately, it comes down to the fact that it's so hard for us sinners to humble ourselves, to submit to Jesus as our Lord and Savior, because we are so afraid to lose the hope that we can be the kings and queens of our own lives. There's nothing more prideful and more self-centered than us puffing out our chests, walking up to God and saying, I'll take this, I'll take that, but Jesus, I do not want you. Anyone that's a parent in this room, I know that if your child, I know that my children would come up to me and say, Daddy, I want my inheritance, I want the clothes you gave me, the food, the comfort, all that, but I don't want anything to do with you. My heart would break. See, my fear is when reading this passage and when I look at myself, I will have the same spiritual sickness as the religious leaders where I work for the church, I go to Bible study, I help others out, I try to follow the rules, but I still am completely missing the point and everything could be void. And the question I have to ask myself daily and what Jesus is asking is, do you actually want me or just what you can get from me to gain in life? And the Bible talks about the beauty and the sincerity of the faith of a child. And I can remember a time where we're reading from a kid's story Bible with Lyndon. And uh, in the titles of the different sections, there was one that says, Jesus was lost. And Lyndon just starts breaking down uncontrollably. And I'm like, what's wrong? What's wrong? And he said, Daddy, but Jesus can't be lost. Why is he lost? Like, if, if he's gone, how can he save us? He's my friend. Where did he go? And he was so scared to lose Jesus, his dear friend. And he's weeping because of it. And I start crying because I'm like, that's the most beautiful thing that I've ever heard. Because this is 100% different than how the religious leaders viewed the purpose of, of religion and, and scripture and all that. Because they were focused more on themselves, not on Jesus, where they just want to feel good about themselves. They want to feel superior to others. They want to hit people over the head with the Bible. They care more about just knowing the facts and the information. But Lynn is like, I don't care about any of that give me Jesus. And in this scenario, I had the privilege of saying, don't worry, Jesus is very alive and very well, the right hand of God the Father advocating for us. And Lyndon, everything points to him. Everything points to Jesus. You do not have to worry. He is there to do the work for us. And I remember a pastor of mine had with the same storybook Bible um, used as a point the beginning of this of, of the book, kind of like the introduction. And I really want to read this uh, to you guys because I think it's such a beautiful um, explanation of just how specific, like the Bible all points to Jesus and shows that everything is supposed to be all pointing to Jesus. And it's warning us about us making about everything or making everything about ourselves. So it says, now some people think that the Bible is a book of rules telling you what you should and shouldn't do. The Bible certainly does have some rules in it. They show you how life works best, but the Bible isn't mainly about you and what you should be doing. It's about God and what he has done. Other people think the Bible is a book of heroes showing you people you should copy. The Bible does have some heroes in it, but as soon as you, you'll soon find out most of the people in the Bible aren't heroes at all. 
They make some big mistakes, sometimes on purpose. They get afraid and run away. At times, they are downright mean. No, the Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything to rescue the one he loves. It's like the most wonderful of fairy tales that has come true in real life. You see, the best thing about this story is, it's true. There are lots of stories in the Bible, but all the stories are telling one big story. The story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. It takes the whole Bible to tell this story. And at the center of the story, there is a baby. Every story in the Bible whispers his name. He is like the missing piece in a puzzle. The piece that makes all the other pieces fit together. And suddenly you can see a beautiful picture. And this is no ordinary baby. This is the child upon whom everything would depend. This is the child who would one day but wait Our story starts where all good stories start, right at the very beginning. And so we see everything points to Jesus. It's not about us. And Jesus is not just trying to say, oh, here's another rule. Don't be prideful. When you're prideful, you're bad. Feel bad about yourself. He's like, no, I'm trying to help you. I'm trying to save you because if you miss the point and you don't actually want me, you don't come right into me, you won't be with me in heaven for forever. It's got eternal ramifications. And also, if you focus solely on yourself and what you can gain if you want to be in control and you want to save yourself, all you're going to do is hurt yourself and crumble under the pressure. And an example is if we had pride and if we didn't let go of pride, when we read scripture, we can look at a story like the story of Joseph, where his brothers were so jealous of him that they sold him into slavery. And then he goes and he has to suffer in prison um, in Egypt And Joseph is praying and praying and he's showing faith and he's being faithful, being like, God, you're going to get me out of this. I trust in you. And God, the father does that. And and he brings him out of that suffering and he actually ends up at the right hand of Pharaoh and trusted and he helps the people through a drought and he actually helps save his family because they were from the area. And he also goes and he forgives them. And so if we were prideful people and we're only focused on ourselves, we look at that passage and say, well, I've got to be Joseph. If I just pray and if I do all the right things, if I just have enough faith, nothing bad's going to happen in my life and everything's going to be great. You'll know quite quickly that if you have that mindset, you're going to crumble under that pressure. And that is a dangerous mindset to have. But what scripture tells us is that no, when we look at it, when we're focused on Jesus, when he is the center, we read that story very differently. That that Joseph is pointing to the true Joseph. The true Joseph being Jesus, because Jesus very similarly was betrayed by the people that he was closest to. He then had to humble himself and he suffered on the cross and he felt abandoned. He was beaten and ultimately died an excruciating death on the cross. But then God the Father raised him up, raised him from the dead. And now he is on the right hand of God the Father advocating for us, saving us because of his work on the cross. We now can be wiped clean when we submit to him as Lord and Savior. That is the gospel, and he is speaking truth, and he is forgiving us each and every day. Oh, the weight is lifted off. When Jesus is the center, we will not crumble. The whole Bible acts like how John acted. John the Baptist, where he pointed everyone to Jesus. He said, I must decrease, 
he must increase. And remember how John the Baptist was radiant and infectious? This is how your lives could be like when you actually go and you want and you cling to Jesus. Because John the Baptist didn't see himself as king. He humbled himself. He clinged to Jesus. He didn't crumble under the pressure of having to be his own savior. He was not looking for the approval of others. And ultimately, his pointing to Jesus led to his death. And he was okay with that. So if that's how you want to be able to live your life, it's all about pointing to Jesus. And the crazy part is when Jesus is talking to the religious leaders and he's talking about John the Baptist, John the Baptist most likely dead at the time. And he died probably around the age 32, which terrifies me because that's only like a year away for me. Life is temporary. We do not have the time to try and save ourselves. We do not have the time to try and do everything on our own. We don't have the time to be in our pain, in our suffering, just hoping that maybe something that I do can do something different. This has got eternal ramification. If you go your whole life just checking off every box and you don't actually believe and love and run to Jesus, you could be gone tomorrow and it could all be void. You could have completely missed a point. And friends, I do not want that for each and every one of you. So as I close, there's a twofold challenge to you. Maybe you're in, in the room and you've been someone who's never put yourself in a place to look and actually assess the kind of evidence that Jesus provides that testifies that he is Lord and Savior of our lives. Or maybe you have been someone that just actually can't accept Jesus because you're still struggling to let go of wine to be your own king and queen. But what I encourage you to do today is to release that weight and to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior and believe that Jesus is the one who died on the cross for your sins and rose again, conquering Satan's sin and death, that to submit to him, that's my challenge for you today. Let go of that control. This, and maybe you're someone on the other side of the spectrum where you've known Jesus your whole life, you've, you've submitted to Jesus, but you're starting to realize you have the same spiritual sickness as the religious leaders. And you've focused on all the wrong things that you just care more about. How to utilize the church, how to utilize scripture, your position. You want to use Jesus for your own gain. You focus on all the wrong things. You actually haven't been clinging to Jesus. And you're terrified because right now you realize you've been missing the point all along. My call to you is to run to Jesus and ask for forgiveness. And ask him to give you a heart to long for him. And Jesus will, Jesus will forgive you. That's the beautiful thing about it. So I'm going to pray because Jesus is so good. I'm going to pray for your hearts to long for him because you will see a tangible change in your life. Lord, we love you. We're thankful that Jesus is the one that's done the work for us, that we don't have to do the work for ourselves. God, we repent and we ask for forgiveness for when we've made things all about ourselves, when we've been prideful, when we've hurt others because of our pride, when we've hurt ourselves because of our pride. Help us to have hearts that just want to focus on Jesus. Things like serving and Bible says all that are amazing, but our relationship needs to start first with you and all those things will come. God, we love you. We're so thankful for the claims that Jesus makes and that they are true. Amen. So church, I'm going to leave you with a reminder that at the end of the day, everything points to Jesus. He is our keeper. 
and he will present us before God's throne, glorified and without compromise. So here are the words I have for you before you leave. Now to him who has the power to keep you free from stumbling and to set you before his glory, blameless and with a shout of joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, power, and authority before all the ages, now and to all eternity. Amen. Have a great rest of your day.